Test. One, two, three, four. This is take three. I um, have been using the wrong channel. Finally figured that out after two recordings. I'm going to try to keep this even more eloquent, maybe even more tight than other versions. My name is Dom Panconian. This is Myth, Ritual, and Symbolism. And mostly what I want to do in this particular conversation, um, again, I'm in conversation with your problem posing, so there's a little bit of two-way. Um, I'm going to start by several of you asked questions in differing words about why we're going back to these old theoretical texts instead of using more recent, more seemingly relevant, less riddled with problem texts. Audrey, you wrote that really well. Ryan, you wrote that too. In other words, and maybe a bit more bitingly, um, both re you're asking a really important question in a multiplicity of ways. And so I thought I would go back and read for you a blog that I wrote for students in this class in 2019. Um, as a kind of a, here's my thinking at this moment in time. It remains my thinking at this moment in time, though less so. In 2019, I was teaching four theoretical lenses. In 2022, I am teaching two. We get from Freud to Malinowski pretty quickly, and then we move on to world building, and, and that's where I really want us to focus on um, on using these, these ways of knowing and or getting past these ways of knowing. And so I've built a lot of extra time into the end of this course where instead of hanging out with old, um, thinkers, we are using our time and our space to, to do our own knowledge making, um, specifically around sacred narratives and thinking about what, what we are able to or not do with sacred narratives, um, our, or, our own or and those of others. And so um, I want to do that. I want also Eli to respond to a question you asked about how a reader can know if an anthropologist's account is accurate or reliable. Then I want to move on to what is functionalism. A lot of you wrote really interesting, fabulous questions in general. Again, thank you always for your problem posing. But um, in your questions, there was sometimes at the end this kind of, okay, but so what is functionalism anyways? There's a lot going on in the, in Malinowski, for example, or there was a lot going on in Beidelman's Rabbit and Hyena. How do we just boil this down? What What's the takeaway? What do we need to know to go on to do our own functionalist analyses? So I'm going to get you that. Um, also, several of you, I thought this was really interesting, asked about, you know, like, how or why can functionalists be so optimistic about society? Um, that was Bennett, Linnea. Your question was, how close are we? And by we, I mean Americans. Um, and I know, obviously, you're saying that's problematic, but here, let's just use it to be quick. Um, how close are we to having a functionalist society? Is this something that's achievable? Um, which then suggests that you too are thinking that like functionalist means something that like works and is good and harmonious. And then Abriana, you say, is functionalism inherently flawed as a theory because there is no true harmonious society? Um, or is that part of the reason it is a theory? And so in all of these cases, um, Eli too, you had this kind of like the problem of functionalists not taking into account individuality and free thought. Um, all of these cases, you're saying, okay, there's a sense that functionalism, if, if they are optimistic and, and believe in harmony, like, then there's this kind of idea, I think, that you're thinking that functionalist analysis should lead us, either lead us to society as harmonious, or this theory only exists if society is harmonious. And I think the problem is the word harmonious or harmony. And I know that the sociology tutor used it, and so then I used it too. I would say, let's maybe stop using the word harmony and let's start using the word stability. But again, I'm gonna get here. 
And then the other thing I want to do is I want to talk to you specifically about the assignment for this week, which is our functionalist essay and also the annotated bibliography that enables us to do that functionalist essay. And you have that written out. I think I've done it as carefully as I can, as clearly as I can in 11.1 and 11.2, the assignments for this week. But I want to talk you through it too and also talk you through the, some examples so that you have it in this audio format as well. This is all about being multimodal. And let's start with the blog and why we're going back to these hundred year old texts, Freud as Malinowski. And I'm going to use Dr. Soyuni Madison, who is a, she's in performance studies, she's also in anthropology. I'm just gonna say she's a really smart, badass, transdisciplinary thinker. She was at Northwestern for a lot of years. I'm not sure if she's still there. I should have looked before I hit record on this. Um, I'll find out and I'll let you know if she's no longer at Northwestern. Otherwise, let's say she's still there. Um, and here now, and you're going to also see as I read you this blog, this is from 2019 and again my courses always evolve and as I said in this particular version of this course, we didn't do the world building at end, we spent a lot more time hanging out with different theorists and trying on different theoretical lenses for analyzing myths. And so, um, without further ado, here's me in 2019 for students in this course. We met several famous theorists this semester and those who were central to our thinking as we figured out semiology via Saussure and Barthes, and then psychoanalysis, Freud, functionalism, Malinowski, and structuralism, Levi-Strauss, have a few very obvious things in common. They are each male. They are each white. They are each European. They are each academics who held lofty positions in historically established universities and they're each now dead. I'm not sure if I will always teach this course as I do. Probably not. Just as your making evolves, so too does my course designing. And again, all of you here now listening to me know that this course has evolved. But to date, I have borrowed, in my course design thinking, the logics of Dr. Soyini Madison, who wrote in 1999, quote, each one of the now dead white male theorists helped me to see my way to the edge of many rivers of knowing and not knowing. They go back and forth, so do I. And in their guidance, I laugh and think and I realize these fathers helped me see the river in the darkness and they have helped lead me to it. But they cannot make me get in the water. I cannot enter the river. I cannot get my feet wet. I dare not swim in the river. Can I bear to hear the sounds when water crashes against rock? To swim and to hear, I need the mothers. Mothers who pounded bone and chain for their breath and mine. I need the other fathers who are more ancient and more my own. That's Soyini Madison in 1999. And there are two metaphors she's using there. One is the sort of idea that mothers and fathers are the knowledge makers, right? Our, our antepasados, our ancestors, and, and this use of this kind of family metaphor um and and so knowledge too when knowledge making is kind of like family inheritance and then the other metaphor in this is that of the river the river of knowledge and the idea that you can get in it get wet um swim in it etc um and so so uni madison is saying okay i needed those fathers and she means they're the the now dated she means white male theorists, she's thinking about people like Marx, she's thinking about Franz Fanon, she's maybe, um, I'm borrowing from another article she wrote, she's thinking about Derrida, 
Um, and she's thinking about the things that she learned from these scholars who came before her, um, who were mostly but not entirely white, and um, writing from places of privilege. And she's saying, I needed them. They, they helped me to find this kind of river of knowledge and knowledge making in the darkness. They led me to this kind of practice of knowledge making, let's say, or in the metaphor, the river. But she's saying, they cannot make me get in the water. I cannot enter the river. I cannot get my feet wet. I dare not swim in the river. And um, then she says, can I bear to hear the sounds when water crashes against rock? And for me, as I read this, I always think of water crashing against rock as being those moments when knowledge ceases to be knowledge, when it becomes problematic and racist and classist and not knowledge. And, and, and we come to these sudden awarenesses that what we once knew was in fact wrong. And so for me, if water is, is knowledge and knowing, then water crash, crashing against rock becomes the moment where, and, and I should call Soyini and figure out if that's what she meant, but that's what I hear when I read this passage. And then Soyini concludes, to swim and to hear, I need the mothers, mothers who pounded bone and chain for their breath and mine. I need the other fathers who are more ancient and more my own. And just to be clear, Soyini is using my own, Soyini is writing this as a black woman academic um, and and so that sense that these kind of old in particular white knowledge makers of the past that are so often cited are not her own right um, and I would say for most of us here in this class all of us in this class in fact they're not our own either um, we're not whether we share social positionality or not with them they're not of us they're not ours and then now in this blog, I'm going to continue reading, and this is back to me and my voice. And thus, my current practice plus beliefs are these. I do still teach you the old white guys. They are good for getting into grad school. They are good for leading us to, quote, rivers of knowing and not knowing, end quote. But most importantly, having borrowed slash tried on the understandings of the old white guys, you are each now able to make informed decisions to move beyond them. And informed is the key word there. You're not just saying, this is bullshit. I know this isn't relevant to me. I'm not even going to read it. I'm going to move past it. You're saying, okay, I read it. I got it. I can explain to anyone around me what was problematic about it. And therefore, my decision to move past and onto other stuff is informed, right? If you're ever trapped in an elevator with someone who let's say, is a psychoanalyst and, and strong defender of psychoanalysis, and you want to say, look, it was interesting, here are the things that I thought were worth my while in Freud, but also here are the things that are hugely problematic with Freud, you're going to end up in a much more interesting and useful conversation than if all you have to say is Freud's bullshit, right? Um, you're going to come off like the vast majority of the people in the world who just don't have time for it. And I don't know, maybe that's okay. I also understand that we live in an info glut. So I'm not going to judge anybody that takes that latter point of view, but I'm going to say you're going to end up at a smarter conversation um, if you're able to make informed decisions about moving past some of these thinkers. Me, again, in this blog, think of the old white dudes as a point of departure. You will walk out of this virtual classroom with new awareness of scientific strategies used in the past to interpret myths and rituals. You also better know four oft-cited academics. From this point of departure, first, it becomes up to you to find the equally or even more important yet overlooked thinkers, the mothers and the other fathers, as Madison called them. And then second, it becomes up to you to do your own smarter, better thinking than those who preceded you. And according to Paulo Freire, here, let me pause again, 
I have always had Paulo Freire in all that I've done since I've started teaching in college when I was 25 years old. I started leading college classrooms at Northwestern, discussion groups at the very least. I've always had Freire at the back of my mind. Um, this semester and last semester are the first semesters where I've really opened a course with Freire and said, I'm going to do Freire all the way through. And so for you, for example, that became problem posing. Let's, again, remember, this is the first time I've ever in my life said, let's do problem posing almost every week and see how it goes. Um, that's Freire saying, let the people determine the conversations. And so here in this 2019 version, Freire pops up, but just at the very end when we're talking about decolonizing knowledge and decolonizing mythology in particular. And so in the blog I write, according to Paulo Freire, whose most famous book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is, in my and Chicago rapper No Names Opinions, a worthy addition to your to-read list if you have not yet read it, quote, there is no ultimate answer to any problem, only answers with varying degrees of correspondence to reality. The purpose of education is to learn a process of comprehending that reality, rather than to learn what someone else, an authority, believes that reality to be. The goal for the individual is the development of what Freire calls conscientização, the overt awareness not only of a process of analysis, but also of the liberating, humanizing effects of using such a process to better understand the world. So most simply, Freire is saying the goal of education is to learn the process of comprehending reality. It's not about learning um, what reality is, what someone else believes reality to be. And um, here's where I can say to you then, what I think is that by learning these various like strategies for comprehending reality, or for, for interpreting myths, for interpreting the institutions that organize society, right? Whether they're psychoanalysis, functionalism, there was also structuralism, there are lots of other ones that we could borrow into our thinking this semester. Learning those processes of comprehending reality that others have proposed in the past or adopted in the past um, helps us to, to better understand what is possible um, and also ultimately, therefore, to better arm our own um, systems for comprehending reality, for, for designing our own systems for comprehending reality, if that makes sense. Me again in this blog to my 2019 students, but also to you now. Find the lesser known theories for analyzing our world, for making sense of our world, sure. And I have recommendations about where to start if you want them. But then afterward, use, quote, the processes of comprehending reality, end quote, which you have learned in school and out to design your own theories and arrive at your own knowing. In the end, it can be, if you allow it to be so, up to you to make sense of our stories, myths, our dances, rituals, and all else within our worlds, plural. What I hope is that now that you have conversed with the old white guys, you will interpret and know with an eye toward correcting for all the colonial sense-making of our past and present, right? And so Freud, like Malinowski, were trying to make sense of sacred narratives, of dreams, of the mind, the human mind in Freud's case, of society in Malinowski's case, of all of the institutions that organize society and why they persist or evolve or change, or again, don't in the case of Malinowski. And all right, let me leave that there. Let me try, Eli, I'm going to answer a question, your question about the anthropologist's accounts and how they can ever be considered to be accurate. I'm gonna do this, I did this in the last take that didn't record, maybe thank goodness for all of you, it was much longer version. I'm gonna do this in short form. Um, 
Sciences in general work similarly. Yes, the social sciences are different from something like chemistry that can be um, you can investigate inside of a lab and you can control for most factors, etc. In anthropology, you've got a lot of uncontrolled factors going on, right? When, you, when you're deep hanging out and participant observing and, and in society, there, there aren't a lot of controls. But the logics of science are similar so that in chemistry, let's say you've got a chemist and that chemist takes chemical A, adds it to chemical B, and comes out with chemical D. And let's say that um, that's all that we know. Like, that's not knowledge yet, because we don't know if that's reliable or not. We just know that this one person added chemical A to chemical B, and they're telling us they got chemical D. And so what you do, and think back to high school, for example, or maybe middle school, when you had to write out labs, and you write out this introduction that explains what you're doing, and then you describe everything you did, and then at the end you write through your findings, and then you have a discussion, and then you have a conclusion, right, which are your kind of takeaways. That um, You're writing that out, and I don't know if you learned this this way, but I did. Um, you're writing that out so that everyone else that wants to can go back and repeat your experiment. They can, everyone else in the world can go back and take chemical A and add it to chemical B and see what they come out with. And if people over and over and over again are coming out with chemical D, just like that initial chemist I described, then we're constructing knowledge. We, we can share this sense that, that A plus B equal D, right? That becomes knowledge until at some point in time, chemists are still doing, maybe they find some bias that is inherent in, in the way that the chemicals were added or there was some problem and they correct for that and then all of a sudden they're arriving at some other chemical. Um, at that point, the knowledge changes. And, but again, it's not because one chemist did it and came out with a different answer. It's because chemists are repeatedly performing this and, and coming out with the same answer. And anthropology works the same way. Um, we ask questions and they're similar or the same or overlapping. And we ask them in different places in different times. Um, but we are a discipline of many, and so you've got people asking at the same time the same or similar questions in, in Mexico City, for example, in southern Huatulco, Oaxaca, for example, in, these are places where I've done my own fieldwork in Rosario, Argentina, where I am right now, right? I'm not the only anthropologist in Rosario, Argentina right now. And um, even while my questions aren't maybe the same as other people here at this particular moment in time, we're, we're participant observing, we're deep hanging out, um, we're trying to understand norms and values and beliefs. We're talking to people and writing down what we're learning, etc. And so there's this, if what I'm concluding based on the kind of quote-unquote data that I'm accumulating is really not in fitting with, with what all the other people in Rosario right now are finding, that becomes problematic. The question starts to be, okay, am I just talking to people who are not the same as the people, the kinds of people everyone else is talking to? Or is there something wrong? Is, is there something I'm doing in my study that is maybe biasing my study or, or, um, or leading me to particular outcomes that are not in fitting with the kinds of outcomes that everyone else is arriving at? Does that make sense? And so then again, this is also why always, I mean, this is the true reason for having things like JSTOR and going back to the literature. Whenever you're doing research, you're always paying attention to what everyone else is doing, especially as it relates to you, so that you can see what other people have found and you can see how they've found it. And so that you're not just starting from zero and saying, I have this great question and I'm going to invent this methodology 
and um, you're saying, okay, this person asked this in this context and found this out, and I'm going to borrow that exact same method, but I'm going to put it somewhere else. And so Don Kalb, for example, is doing really interesting research on the quote-unquote creative class. He's a Marxist anthropologist who I really respect and with whom I spend as much time as I can in conversation because I think he's really interesting and makes me smarter. And also we have overlap in our research interests. So he's doing this research in um, Eastern Europe with research assistants and I in Mexico City for the last several years, just before, until just before leaving for Rosario, was interested in studying um, and was studying more accurately Argentine creatives and artists who had migrated from Argentina to Mexico City and were working in the arts and, and in design and in film, etc. Mexico City is a huge producer of artistic content, um, audiovisual content in particular, but all arts. And it's the number one producer of audiovisual content for Latin America, for example. You know that when you're out in Rosario at the parks and all the little kids are talking in a kind of Mexican Spanish and you're like, that's so weird, I'm in Rosario, which has a really specific Spanish. And these little kids at the park are talking about columpios for swings instead of amacas for swings. Amaca is the word in Argentina. Mexicans say columpio and suddenly you've got all these kids saying columpio and saying way and saying things that are very specific to Mexico and even kind of street Mexican Spanish. And, and I realized really quickly what was going on is they were watching YouTube videos and the YouTube videos are overwhelmingly made by kids in Mexico. Not entirely, obviously. Um, but Mexico does have a predominance, let's say, this kind of strength at producing audiovisual content, both professionally and on platforms like YouTube. And so all of that, oh my gosh, tangent a little bit, is to say that, um, what do I want to say with that? Oh my God, Eli, I'm trying to explain that. Um, oh, so I'm asking this question, right, in, in a context in Mexico City where there's this abundance of Argentine artists and um, creators, creatives, designers, they've migrated, they're labor migrants, not in the way we're used to thinking about labor migrants, but they're absolutely labor migrants. They're mostly young, they're mostly well-educated, they're mostly middle class or above. Um, they're also kind of adventurers. There's all sorts of ways to think about them that complicate our um, maybe most obvious, most standard ways of thinking about labor migrants. Um, but ultimately my questions were, what class is the creative class? They're still giggers, they're still um, active participants in a global gig economy. And it was a really interesting lens into thinking about that global gig economy as global, right? And, and so all of this is to say, I'm asking these questions in one part of the world, Don Kalp is asking them in another part of the world, and all of the while we're in touch. Um, because we're interested in knowing if we're going to arrive at the same kinds of outcomes. And we're interested in knowing, like, what are the problems with this kind of practice? So, all right, let me move on from that. That was still longer than I meant for it to be, but not as long as last time. Let's get to what is functionalism. What is functionalism? Most simply, it is not a theory for arriving at utopia. It's not about, the assumption isn't that society is harmonious and harmonious means society is utopic it's that society is more or less stable that's why it persists if not um it would collapse right and so the idea is that society as something that is transgenerational multi-generational that continues to persist um and in one of these takes that i deleted i decided to use the, the word community instead of society because i just think it's more concrete it's smaller it's easier to think about um, maybe let's do that here so let's think about a community communities that persist through time are, are stable um, they don't disappear, they don't collapse. 
they don't, um, let's say everybody migrates to the city and there's no longer a pueblo. And so functionalist thinkers would say, you know, these aspects of this society or of this community uh, work to sustain it. If, if they continue, then they're doing something to maintain order or again, stability. And I thought one really obvious example maybe is schooling because schools, right? Think about what US schooling looks like and think about the fact that US schooling has looked like it has since the middle of the 19th century, right? So we're approaching 200 years of having a school system that looks more or less the same. You go in at five, you come out at 18, you can opt into more years if you want. You're educated in batches, you're organized by age, by, by year of manufacture is how Ken Robinson says that. Um, Ken Robinson has a great talk called Do Schools Kill Creativity? in which he obviously argues, yes, if you ever run out of things to watch, it's dated now, but it's still a good talk. It's, I think, from 2010. Um, in any case, Schools. Why haven't schools changed? Um, because they continue to do for the U.S. society what they're supposed to do. One, they continue to give youth a shared sense of, of belonging. This you go to one, they give youth something to do, while all of their parents, who are now a part of a capitalist and increasingly exploitative capitalist economy, go to work, right? Um, and maybe even work multiple jobs and work longer hours every year than than the year before. Um, so one is where do we put our kids when we have to work as hard as we have to work to survive inside of this kind of an economic system. But two, it's also about um, teaching, despite how quickly we're trying to change and how much better we're trying to get at educating, there's still sort of this core like what are the things that matter, history, science, English, a foreign language, maybe art, maybe physical education. Um, it's still reinforcing these shared understandings that these are the things that matter, not only that, but that these things can be compartmentalized and taught compartmentalized so you can go to one class and then another class and then another class and then another class and there you don't have to get all messy and, and think transdisciplinarily, right? It's just so much neater to have a biology teacher teaching biology and then you kind of have five minutes in the hallway and you go on to English taught by a literature professor or teacher or whatever, right? Like, that fits our own thinking, shared understandings. And obviously, yes, we're more complex than that. And obviously, maybe all of us know that's overly simplified and not realistic and it's problematic, but we continue to participate in it. And it allows us to continue to, 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 to share understandings alongside of each other. It also allows us to, um, this is maybe gross, but I think arguable, there are a lot of people in society whose legitimacy hinges on how good their grades were in school, or what, how good the university they went to was, or how um, maybe right the sense that like I make a lot of money because I worked really hard in school, and that got me into a really good university, and then that got me into a really good job, and so the money I have, I deserve, right? I worked for it all my life. And, and simultaneously, you've got people who say, you know, I kind of just fucked around in school and I didn't really care about it and I wish that I had because now like I'm working three jobs and it's really hard and nobody's paying me what I really need to earn to make a good living and I can only get these shit jobs as whatever in the service economy and, right? And you've got this, in both cases, education and our shared understanding that education works, does something, functions, um, legitimates those different understandings, like self-understandings of positionality in, in, in a class system, for example, Bella, Bella, you were saying, what do functionalists say about class relations? Um, well, in this case, what they say about education is education um, 
in one sense, among the many things that it does, is it reinforces class relations because it teaches people to understand their class positionality as an outcome of their performance in school, for example. And it doesn't matter that we all kind of know that's bullshit. We all also kind of still continue to believe this. And this makes me think right back to the um, the optional article for week 10 on magic and magical thinking and that one of the really important takeaways, I've said this elsewhere in this class, but I thought the author there said this really well, is that human beings have the ability to think conflicting things simultaneously. We can both believe religion and believe science, and there's no problem. Our, brain, our brains don't implode or explode or whatever. We, we can do that. We're complex and we're interesting that way. And the same thing happens in this case. We can both know schooling is bullshit and simultaneously subscribe to some of these these shared understandings that if you do good in school, you're going to do good in life, for example, right? All right. So maybe I hope that that's useful. And so what I want to say here specifically about functionalism is what it is most specifically is it's a way of studying different institutions. And in this class, we're interested in sacred narratives um, in their context. So first and foremost, Malinowski at the same time of Freud is saying, just like a lot of you did when you read Freud, it doesn't make sense to think that anything's universal, right? Look at all of the diversity around us. Look at how different people are. Um, look at how diverse culture is and the fact too that it's dynamic and ever evolving, right? It's not static. And, and why would we ever think that symbols would have these fixed universal meanings? And so Malinowski writes explicitly to psychoanalysts and calls them out for that and says, we need to, if we want to understand things, we need to understand them in their context. We need to go to the people, to whom are the sacred narratives, in the case of studying sacred narratives, we need to go to the people to whom these sacred narratives belong, and we need to try to understand them and their societies and their social orders and their beliefs and values and norms. We need to understand their understandings. We need to understand how they understand their myths. And only with that knowledge, and we probably too need to understand their places, um, the landscapes, the, the, their relationships to nature, all of these things, how they use nature and or um, relate to nature, get used by nature, etc. We need to understand all of these things. What are the risks in their lives? And only with that knowledge, the threats, what threats do they encounter? With that knowledge, then we can read the narratives that belong to them and hope to better understand those narratives. And we can do that whether we are studying a myth um, and a people to which we also belong or whether we're studying a myth and a people um, for which we are situated from without, right? And so Malinowski's not, you can be an autoethnographer, you can be an ethnographer, and that holds true in anthropology today. And, and both have strengths and both have weaknesses. I want to say that to you. Um, it's easy to think that you're best positioned to do a study if you're positioned from within, from the very start, from birth. If you've shared socialization with the people you're interested in better understanding and, and with whom you're interested in working. And that's not always the case. Um, I thought, and I'm, gonna, I'm borrowing from an earlier version of this audio that I didn't record, I thought immediately of children um, and how children as observers are really interesting to pay attention to because they see everything. There are no taken for granted yet. Everything is interesting. You never know what they're going to notice next because it's so likely that it's not going to be what you notice because things have become commonplace, right? Like we start to see and to unsee and we start to like there things are socially valued. And so we've been taught that things are worth noticing or not worth noticing. And then you introduce a one and a half year old 
into your life and suddenly that one and a half year old is pointing to everything that you don't even want to see right not only that but they're like picking it up and maybe smelling it and or tasting it and so all of that is to say um <laughs> what am i saying um observing seeing this is about seeing this is about um functionalist analysis and the strengths of being an outsider investigator that's really what this is about there are advantages i'm putting that in here because i think we all know inherently that there are advantages to being a quote-unquote insider investigator there are also advantages to being an outsider investigator think about um when you go someplace new and and you get off a plane or get out of a car or or even just step into a new neighborhood and think of all of the things you were able to see that are maybe also present in spaces and places in which with which you're more familiar but maybe you've stopped seeing you've stopped noticing in those spaces with which you're more familiar okay there that i want to say that because i think that's important it's it's a little bit too easy to say we're only supposed to study what belongs to us and that's it and that's the limit i am there there are reasons i think valid and interesting reasons to push back against that you guys though of course are empowered to push back again against me and say no 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 it's always going to be colonial it's always going to be problematic it's always going to feel uncomfortable and unethical and and we can continue to have this conversation um, so I keep dancing around what is functionalism. What is functionalism? Again, let me say, it is most simply understanding sacred narratives as something that if they persist, they persist um, because, so, so the practice of functionalism is about contextualizing the myth and then the lens, the view of functionalist theory is once you've contextualized that myth, you're able to see how a myth functions to teach um, or to maintain order. It, it maintains order because it teaches future and, and further generations of the norms and values of a society. It um, reinforces a particular social ordering, right? And, and the relationships that, say, sisters have to husbands or uncles have to nephews. Or if you glance back at Beidelman's Hyena and Rabbit, you'll see that Beidelman's interest was really a lot in that, about family order and power and who's most empowered inside of these kin systems and, and when that power um, corrodes. So for example, if you have an uncle who kills his mother in a famine, you're no longer beholden, like you don't have to respect that uncle anymore because that uncle has behaved in a way that is so anti-normative, right, inside of the society where you do not kill your mother. Um, that would be socially dysfunctional. So that uncle has broken with a social norm and therefore lost his own credibility, legitimacy, access to true power, so that the nephew, the rabbit, in the case of the hyena and the rabbit, doesn't have to listen to his uncle. And in fact, he wins. He stays alive while the, the hyena uncle dies because he disobeys the uncle and chooses not to kill his mother, which was there in fitting with. He, he chose to obey this social norm and respect his mother. He hid her. And what happens in the fam famine? Well, he has someone to go to who will kept him, keep him fed while his uncle doesn't, and his uncle, ultimately, the hyena, starves to death, right? And so Beidelman says, that's a really interesting narrative. And imagine if Freud studied it. Beidelman doesn't say this, but Freud would see hyena, would see rabbit, would see pointy ears, would see, um, I don't know, bowl of food and the uterus. Like, Freud would see things in this myth, and maybe they would be interesting. But what... Um, a Malinowski and a functionalist thinker, including Beidelman, see is, all right, this is reinforcing these shared understandings inside of this society that 
family members are positioned in this order and that nephews must respect uncles and that mothers must always be respected, etc. But that when someone breaks a rule, then what do we do in that situation? Well, okay, in that situation, that myth is teaching that the nephew no longer has to obey the uncle. In fact, the nephew is better off not listening to that uncle and continuing to subscribe to that social norm um, that is respect your mother and keep her alive. Don't kill her. Um, and so that's what a functionalist analysis of a myth looks like. And you can do it for myths. You can also do it for, I've had a student in the past write a functionalist analysis of cryptids. I'm going to try this week to get you a functionalist analysis of the quote unquote American cowboy, by which I mean the kind of like white, hyper-masculine of the West, totally cleaned up, fictional, let's say mythical, um, iconic image of the latter half of the 19th century. I'm going to try to write through how I think that functioned, what I think that did for society at that moment in time, how it um, mitigated stresses, for example, for a middle-class white American subpopulation. What did, what did it do? What did that image and having that image and, and being able to identify with that image and, and believe in that image or icon, what did that do for particular people in the U.S.? Um, and, and then why did that, so therefore, why did that persist through time? Um, my point of departure as a functionalist is it functioned, it did something that was useful for those individuals, it helped them, um, I don't know, to feel better about themselves, to, to, to have a sense of, of purpose and, and, and to feel motivated to go forth and explore, etc. I'm not sure where I'm going to arrive in this analysis, but what I'm looking for is how did this particular icon of a quote-unquote American cowboy function for, I think I'm mostly interested in white Americans because I think that's for whom it was functioning. Um, it was working, it was doing something for them that was useful to them. And then um, here's where I can break. Does, so there's a kind of quick glimpse into functionalist analysis. You're gonna write through your myth, you're gonna contextualize your myth or, or cryptids or icon or whatever you choose to do a functionalist analysis of. It can also be a ritual. So you first gotta introduce what you're analyzing and then you've gotta contextualize it so that readers can understand um, the people to whom it belongs, the place in which it's situated. And then you move on and you're gonna try to talk through logic your way through. And a lot of you started to do this already when you were, when I was asking for psychoanalyses and you were doing these more standard, like this sounds like a smart myth analysis to me. You were right to think that. In 2019, we, or perdón, in 2022, we know things like we really shouldn't be trying to understand things outside of their context, right? And on top of that, we should be respectful and be going first to the people to whom these sacred narratives, for example, or rituals belong. And we should be starting with their own understandings rather than just telling them what we think they mean because we have a list of symbols and their definitions. Again, Malinowski was responding to Freud with a lot of his thinking here and saying, this is the better way to do it. Um, so I, I, I still feel like I'm a little bit all over the place, but that's functionalist analysis. Ultimately, you're looking for what does this do? And here's where I can say it's again, it's not about arriving at harmony. It's not about arriving at society. Um, if something functions inside of a society, which is what functionalists believe, it's not because society is perfect or, or getting better or approaching some sort of ideal. It just functions because I, I mean, it functions because it enables society to continue. It doesn't result in radical revolution where everyone's in the streets and 
taking up arms and blowing up everything and not, and I don't mean doing this for a few days or a few weeks and then going back to their jobs and life, etc. I mean, things function um, because over time they continue to maintain long durée, long term, they continue to maintain a kind of stability. They continue to maybe sustain, and in the good sense, certain values and beliefs of a group of people, they continue to, to be part of the, the passage of those beliefs from one generation to the next, but also in a bad way, they might be part of the perpetuation of unjust social hierarchies. And so that you have, um, I mean, education again is the obvious example, but can we, th- I mean, we can think of social, of sacred narratives, and we can think of the American cowboy, and we can think about all of the way in which that quote-unquote American cowboy boasts both erased from view um, all of the massive number and, and even maybe like those who date back to before that quote-unquote white cowboy, all of the cowboys of color from throughout the Americas, right? Particularly in Mexico and Argentina. Um, and not only do they erase or, or, or render invisible wide swaths of cowboys, um, vaqueros, gauchos, whatever you want to call them, um, but they also then reinforced a particular order that, like, who was the hyper-masculine man? Um, he was white, right? Who was the... And, and it, they also reinforced particular gender relations, kind of white man as protector and um, as rugged, as individualist. Like, what role did that... American cowboy play in sustaining capitalism and the legitimacy of capitalism as the kind of best quote-unquote economic system for this still at the time relatively new nation still finding its identity nation right countries like the U.S. like Argentina we don't think about this um, but when you have a country in which the majority of the residents by some point in time, so by the 19th century in the U.S., are not originally from that country, so they're not indigenous to that country. Argentina had the same experience of wide swaths of immigration into the country from Europe, um, also had the same kinds of genocides and um, horrific treatment of the indigenous peoples and that the United States has. And so when you have at some point in time, it's like you wake up and you realize you're in a country where most of the people in this country at this moment in time aren't, it's not their country, right? You've got this problem. You've got this, you need this project. And, and I'm saying this a little bit, um, maybe sardonically, you don't actually need this project. But, but if what you want is social stability and you want um, people not to question your legitimacy as a nation and, and, and not, if you want not to kind of like to have your ass thrown back to Europe because everyone says that's bullshit, you don't belong there anyways and in fact you're all infighting and nobody identifies with anything and there's no shared understandings because you've got Italians and you've got, um, I'm thinking about these old charts of races in which you see that white isn't really a race. You've got Poles, you've got, right, you've got all of these Eastern Europeans who are clearly not white. You've got Jews who are clearly not white. You've got Italians who are clearly not white. You've got, at earlier points in time in the US, you had way more people, quote unquote, of color than you do today because there were so many groups of people who today are identified as white who were definitely not white in the past. And so um, what do you do? How do you build nationhood around all of that? And how do you, how do you get people to, 
to come together and identify as one. In Argentina, they did it largely through soccer um, and the building of soccer clubs and this creating this kind of national sport around which everyone could be passionate and, and tango and there were other things too, other kind of now cultural, um, what are they called, parts of cultural heritage. But, but these were implicit. The, the government intentionally invested in these and built the infrastructure for soccer, for example. So it's not accidental that Argentines are soccer crazed right now, right? And, and a lot of their understandings of, of nationhood and nationalism come from and are bound up with this understanding that like Argentina is a country of soccer. And in the US, I think it was more rugged individualism, right? We are the, we are the pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, go out and pioneer the West and panhandle for gold in the West. And we are explorers and we are risk takers and we are, we've got nothing to lose. And, but there's always to all of these narratives, this kind of hyper individuality. And there's always, I think, in this, if you close your eyes and image, in an image and, and picture, imagine those narratives, there's usually a white man in them. And so, um, I don't know, all of that is just to say that, that a kind of a, a negative um, myth would be the American cowboy. And what it did was it maintained a kind of stability. It reinforced this notion of um, this kind of legitimacy inside of the US. It also reinforced this notion that the white man stands at the top. It, and so that's, that's not harmony the way we're used to thinking about harmony, right? But it is stability. It, it allows for injustices, for racisms, for classisms, for sexisms and heterosexisms, etc., to persist through time. And I think that with that knowledge, it's best to go into this assignment. Um, and now let me check the time. I really have said to you everything I want to say, and it's 45 minutes. If you want, I'm going to leave you just a gloss one more time. I'm going to focus without trying to be all over the place. Um, Linnea, you asked a really interesting question about how social anthropology has advanced since Malinowski's time. I'm going to answer you in text on the discussion board, if that's OK, so that I don't um, make this longer than it already is. But I do want to note that that's a really important question. And for a lot of you, I want you to know that what I did when I knew I wasn't going to get to the questions that you asked and when I was really excited about answering those questions anyways, I typed through my answers in the discussion board. So if you go back to 10.1, um, not in all cases, but in several cases, I did type out my thoughts, my answers. Um, so Linnea, I'm going to go answer you there. And now here's me just focusing on the assignment for this week. Bibliography, three sources from JSTOR, three sources from anywhere else you want. Again, these can be audio, they can be audiovisual. You can, if you are doing autoethnography and you want to go to someone you know, um, someone who belongs to the same community you belong to, or if you're also not doing autoethnography, um, if you're, you're interested in a sacred narrative, whether it belongs to, to you and, and a people to whom you belong or, or not, if you have access to um, people, um, who believe and hold sacred the narrative you're particularly interested in unpacking, they too count as a source, whether you want to interview them, talk to them casually, um, you can call that an interview, it's an unstructured interview, officially. Um, you can be in conversation with them via email, etc. Your knowledge, I tend to say three sources from JSTOR, three sources from anywhere in the internet, but they don't have to come from the internet. They can come from the real world, they can come from a history museum, they can come from a library, they can come from anywhere you want to find them. The idea is you want to cite six sources in this essay, and again, this is your biggest essay. This is really my only formal ask for an essay in this course. 
And so in this essay, you're going to go first find the sources that help you to contextualize the myth. And I've said this above, so I'm reiterating and I'm leaving it here at the end. So for those of you that just want to skip here at the end, you've got it. Um, those sources should help you to understand the people, the society, the place. You can look at the kinds of information I looked for when I was interested in studying um, German Christians just after World War II. I was really interested in how the narrative of Noah worked for them. Um, and I ended up finding mostly articles on JSTOR that were about sort of the absence of, of, of order or, or the absence of social institutions in Germany at the time, the absence of schools, the absence of doctors, the absence of rights. And, and I, but nevertheless, those were useful because then I'm thinking, okay, you've got also a lot of literature on the emasculation of German men at this moment in time. And so it seems like a moment in time in which gender relations might be shifting, right? And I wanted to think, like, what does the narrative of Noah do for people? How does it comfort them? What does it teach them about coping or, or moving past this tragic, not so tragic for the world, but maybe tragic at the individual level, loss, um, tragic in that it upset worlds and lives um, of, of those particular individuals living in Germany at that time. Um, I'm laughing because I've done a much better job talking through that example in other audios and now here you're not getting it. Um, so it sounds like I'm a defender of the Nazis. I'm absolutely not. I did that analysis because I was interested in thinking about how, um, what do you do when the whole world knows that you're the quote unquote devil, that you're Nazis, that you're a part of this country and, and this leadership that just spent more than 10 years um, committing these atrocities and, and you've been a Christian all the way through it. Like, what does that do to your Christianity? Like, like what happens at that moment in time when everyone says, no, you were wrong on top of that, you lost. And, and so that my interest was in that, like, how can the narrative of Noah and the floods function in that particular context? What can it do for that particular population of German believers? And here's where I can say to you, so in this assignment, you're going to start by going and finding these sources, but really, even before you get there, you've got to choose a narrative, or you've got to choose a myth, an icon, a, a something that you want to analyze as a functionalist, and, and it should be something that fits this class. It can also be a ritual. It can be a symbol if you want it to be. Um, how does it function? And so if you pick a myth, a ritual, or a symbol to analyze that transcends time and space, remember, you've got to lock it into time, you've got to lock it into place, like I did with the Germans um, just after World War II and Noah. I could have studied Noah anywhere, at any point in time, at any place. I picked Berlin or all of Germany just after World War II. And once you've done that, that's when you go to JSTOR and you go to everywhere else to find your sources. And what you find is going to shape the analysis you wrote. Because it's not always the fact that everyone has studied gender relations in the place you're interested in, in understanding a sacred narrative, for example. Um, so what you find is going to shape what you're able to say about the myth. And once you have the context, your writing of this essay, my own thinking, one of the easiest ways to write this essay is to start by saying, look, I'm interested in composing a functionalist analysis of this narrative or ritual or symbol, you describe the narrative or ritual or symbol, then you say, this is a narrative that was especially meaningful to the peoples of Acoma in the 1930s in New Mexico, 
and you know just west of Albuquerque and this is what I can tell you about these people and that's where you're going to your JSTOR sources in particular and or the internet and or the community members with whom you're in conversation and you're providing context and then what you're doing is you're doing both you're you're saying okay and so now knowing that here's what we can say about this myth here's how this myth taught the the values and beliefs of the people back to next generations here's how this myth um, reinforced norms or, or shared understandings. Here's how this myth, this sacred narrative, um, reminded people that they had to get up and go to school, for example. Here's how this myth sustained unjust racial hierarchies. Here's how this myth reinforced um, protecting the environment and taking care of nature and treating nature as you would treat a brother, here's how this myth, right, all of these things that, that a particular sacred narrative you're looking at. This isn't Freud where you're saying, oh my god, here's a symbol and it looks phallic and so it's probably a penis and here's uh, something cavernous and so that's probably a uterus and water is birth or rebirth. Again, I'm saying this too. This isn't that. This is Malinowski and then this is all of the smarter functionalist thinkers who came ever after Malinowski who are saying this part of this myth reflects this society, this people, their beliefs, their understandings, their norms, their values in this way. It, it perpetuates and, and allows them to sustain these norms and values. It allows them to teach their beliefs. It allows them to reinforce their, their social structures and orders or their gender systems of gender relations or, or race relations or class relations, etc. This myth does all of these things or does some of these things in these ways and, and you only can see it because you know these things about the people. That's a functionalist essay. And again, just to be really clear, it doesn't have to be, the society doesn't have to be harmonious. The If something functions, if a myth is reinforcing certain aspects of a society, of a community, it doesn't have to be that those aspects are positive and good and quote-unquote harmonious. Um, absolutely, a sacred narrative can reinforce racisms, it can reinforce classisms, it can reinforce um, all of the things that we hate about our society and about our communities today. It doesn't have to, but this is possible. So I want you to know that. Um, I think what I realized in, in looking at your questions for last week was that 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 critique of functionalism at the end is something that's overly positive and overly assuming that all parts of a society function um that was confusing and again something that's important is functionalists do tend to think of society as organisms and so it's like okay if you have an organ in your body it's probably doing something for your body right and then you can say okay but there's the appendix or there's right like we evolve and things stop being useful but then like maybe we stop maybe thousands of years from now we won't have an appendix um all of that is to say that functionalists are thinking like biologists okay it's in the body it's part of the system the human body right let's let's figure out what it does and that's part of how they also got to this logic of like, it must have a function. All right, that was a lot of words to say a lot of things to you. Thank you for being here, whether you are here for all or here for the end. I wish you great weeks and please, please be in touch with me. Let me collaborate. Let me co-think. Let me help you through as you pick your narratives and or rituals and or icons to analyze this week reach out to me and say hey this is what i'm thinking about doing and i was thinking maybe this these are the things i can read into this myth what do you think and i'll think alongside of you and i'll share my ideas and you can borrow my ideas or not as you see fit i can also talk you through how i would order 
um, an essay, once I know like your sources and your thoughts and what you're interested in doing, I can say, look, if I were writing the essay you're writing, I would do it this way. And again, you can borrow my thinking or not. What I want to do is make this as unstressful as I can for you. Okay, this should be, even though, even if it feels old school, this should feel much more relevant than psychoanalysis maybe did. Um, psychoanalysis was mostly supposed to feel exploratory and experimental, and maybe in some cases it led some of you to interesting insights, in other cases it just felt wrong. Um, both of those are okay experiences. This should feel, I hope, much more just to all of you. I think it should feel much more useful and relevant and of the present, even while Malinowski and his discourse were very clearly of the past. Um, there. That's it. Have really good weeks. Take care. Cheers and ciao.